AA Beyond Belief is a podcast by, for, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. So a few weeks ago on one of our Friday live streams, Angela and I talked about Recovery Capital, and it was a conversation based on a talk that Ray Baker gave to at the Many Paths Secular AA Conference in Tacoma, Washington back in 2018. Well, shortly after that episode, I received an email from our guest today. He mentioned that he happened to have developed a system for measuring recovery capital. Sounds interesting, I thought. So I asked if he would be willing to come on our podcast, and he agreed. So I Googled the guy, and I listened to a TED Talk he gave, and I read a short bio of his on his website, and it just blew me away. It's an interesting guy, and uh, his story to me seemed like it was almost a natural progression for him to eventually develop this thing uh, that's called the Recovery Capital Index. So he's here today to talk about all of that. Welcome, David, to uh, AA Beyond Belief. Well, thank you, John. Uh, This is a privilege. I'm looking forward to a conversation. That's a privilege for me, too. Uh, like I said, it was, it was, it was really interesting. You know, I, 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 when I got your email, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. But uh, after I read a little bit more about, about you, it seemed really interesting, you know? Um, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind, David, just kind of going into a little bit of your background about how you came to where you are today to develop this thing. Yeah. You know, not unlike, uh, most people who struggle with, uh, with addiction, um, I sort of meandered towards uh, a place finding, you know, alcohol being a uh, um, a solution to a problem. Uh, strong anxiety, deep anxiety, depression, which I didn't really have a definition for that as a teenager uh, and as a young adult in college. Um, but very quickly uh, found that uh, I wasn't able uh, to deal with alcohol at all. Um, but it solved a pretty big problem. <laughs> Uh, and then as it was solving that problem, it was mounting uh, a whole series of other issues and challenges along the way, progressing deeply over the years, uh, resulting in the, the type of carnage that, that we all know, you know, lost relationships, failing out of college numerous times, uh, in and out of jobs, um, making a career in broadcasting very challenging. Um, uh, but ultimately, as that you know path kind of wound towards a um, a terminus of being able to be in a place to hit reset, um, that set forth a couple of catalysts of meeting just the right people at the right time and being open to following certain experiences that could be challenging and, and difficult. Um, uh, but, but then again, just meeting the right people and giving certain opportunities and just, having experience in certain places to say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to follow this experience as far as I can take it and do what I can with it uh, and see where it goes. And that just led me into various organizations and meeting, you know, people who understood this type of stuff like recovery capital and data science. um, And then just being in a place to invent and create. And um, uh, so, I mean, it's a, there's a lot in there, but it's, it's just a, it's a meandering path. You started off studying architecture yeah. And that I found interesting because from architecture you 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 learned you learned something from architecture beyond just how to design buildings. Yeah, you know, the thing about the first thing you learn in architecture school is form follows function. 
And when you sit and think about that, um, you can apply that concept to buildings. You can apply it to communities. You can apply it to human behavior. Um, you can apply it to all kinds of different design concepts. Um, and so when you start to really think about the way our lives are kind of constructed, uh, they're all designed. There's there's some sort of design there. And that's what architects do. Architects, you know, kind of sit back. They look at the environment. They see what will implicate or, or um, influence uh, what you want to put into a space. And then they kind of build into that or build around it. We do that in our human lives, um, but we kind of do it very intuitively and very innately. Um, but but you know, mindfulness can teach us maybe we can architect uh, our own sort of uh, lives. Well, you were put in a position that I, I've been in before where you were asked to come up with a plan for your life. The judge wanted you to come up with a plan for your life. You know, after, you know, like me, I had multiple DUIs and I was, I was before judges and you were in that position. So, and you came up with a plan and, you know, and I, and I, and I wonder if, if that, helped influence you as well to get to where you were finally able to develop this thing that we'll be talking about recovery capital index. Yeah. You know, when you're, um, it's funny when the judge said that, <laughs> Yeah, <to me>. she <laughs> wants a plan. See, I had a boss tell that to me before <laughs> I want you to come up with a plan and it really helped actually. And really good bosses, um, know how to do that. Right. I think in the criminal justice system, judges don't typically do that. Judges say, I've got the plan. Yeah. And you're you're going to follow follow it. it. Uh, In this case, she said, here are your, here's what's going to constrict you. Um, These are the boundaries. Now tell me what you're going to do inside this lane. And if, you know, she said, if it isn't BS, (laughs) I will let you out of my jail early. I'll give you a reward. You know, so she understood, you know, just behavior. Um, and, and just setting that there was enough for, as I was sitting in jail for, you know, 160 some odd days, um, let the wheels turn a bit, you know, it, it, it started to put me in a position of being in treatment and just starting asking the question, when I leave here, I got to go make a case. What am I going to tell the judge? Where am I going to go? I, I don't know anybody in this state of South Dakota. It's not where I'm from. Um, where should I move to? Who should I know? And people just saying, okay, I'll, I'll help you with that. I'll help you start to figure out and move these dominoes, p- domino pieces around a little bit. And um, yeah, so the, the plan was uh, a sober home, uh, a recovery home in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, and this is 2005. I'd never heard of a sober home before. Pretty new concept. Um, but uh, a counselor knew the guy who managed those homes and and uh, gave me his phone number. And from there, it was pretty much, okay, judge, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go there. I'm going to get immersed into AA like I hadn't been before. Uh, I'm going to, I'm just going to buy in and see what happens, but work and just figure out each thing. But for one year, I'm just going to focus on that, where I'm going to live, what I'm going to concentrate on. And, and, that'll be more than I've done yeah, <laughs> in yeah. maybe the last five or six years. And you did that. And then you, and then you went to, you went back to school 
And while you were there, uh, somebody noticed you. You were I, you were studying. What were you studying originally? I can't remember. Originally, I was studying radio broadcasting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I would have done that, <laughs> but I didn't know. I didn't know about podcasting back in 1980. That <laughs> didn't, didn't exist, of course. But uh, anyway, so you were studying broadcasting, but someone said, "No, nah, that's a waste of your talent," and they thought you should go to law school. Yeah, they did. Um, and if I could, uh, you know, this whole podcasting uh, world. You know, I, I work in radio for almost eight years. And when I lost my job because of a fourth UI in radio, um, some of the people that I knew in town were in TV marketing and in search engine optimization. And we all happened to be at a bar one night at the same time. And and one gentleman, um, the, the two other guys were talking to each other and they said, gosh, if we just knew somebody who knew how to produce radio shows. We could do this thing called podcasting. This was 2005. Wow. Wow. And I overheard that conversation. And the next thing you know, we'd started a company. And from that, uh, we were in the New York Times uh-huh. uh, with what we were doing long before podcasting. Was, yeah. Yeah. You know, 2005. That is, it seems like ancient, ancient times now. <laughs> yeah. And so um, when I went back to school, it seemed like, well, that's the easy button. I'll go back to college and I'll actually learn um, some of the ins and outs of the business of broadcasting and that would help me. And uh, I had to take an elective class. That elective was constitutional law. I was just sort of mildly interested in history. And uh, the professor was a public defender. Um, and she had everybody give a, an argument, like a mock Supreme Court argument. Uh, I gave that and she hunted me down uh, to join her mock trial team. And I rebuffed her a few times, but ultimately I joined the team. And then at a competition, um, we were having lunch together. All the other students were 18, 19, 20. You know, I'm 30. She's 30. And she just flat out asked over hamburgers, uh, what are you doing? What's your story? Why are you? (laughs) uh, Why are you here? And I told her. And she, she said exactly what you said. She looked at me and she goes, you're wasting your life. Um, don't go back into radio. You have to become a lawyer. She says, uh, uh, very few lawyers have woken up in holding cells, not knowing how they got there. And she said, uh, you'd be the best advocate for somebody with mental health conditions or addiction and in the criminal justice system. And, and so she, she sort of threw that out there. And um, that was one more of those life things where you go, okay, I better, I better latch onto this. I don't know what it is, but I'll, I'll, I'll pull the thread a bit. And you did, you went to law school. And when you, when you went to get sworn into the bar, it was that judge who had you come up with a plan, right? That swore you in. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty special moment. She, um, you know, she, she obviously had been knowledgeable of what I was scheming along the way (laughs) Uh, because um, uh, Professor McEwen, who was the professor who uh, got me to think about law school, would come back every summer uh, while I was finishing my undergrad and we'd have a sentencing hearing uh, to modify, modify my sentencing. And so ultimately we got to one point where um, Professor McEwen turned to the judge and said, look, his, his path now is to go to law school. So we are making the case. We are, we are laying the groundwork of a strong legal argument, if you will, 
um, so that he can get into law school and that when he's in law school, all of these stones will line up in place so that when he has to sit before the board of bar examiners um, to prove his good moral character, uh, you know, 15 years of alcohol and drug addiction, eight years of recovery. Um, did he do those things? And did he set a tone so that um, he could be trusted in the bar? And uh, ultimately, you know, those things all lined up in place. And to be able to go back into that courtroom, you know, I think the judge, um, you know, in a courtroom in between two Native American reservations in one of the poorest places of the country, um, she didn't ever really get a chance to see that level of growth. Um, so it was pretty special personally uh, and professionally for her. So um, how did you get into working in, how did you get working into the whole, in the recovery field and then eventually developing uh, the recovery capital index? Yeah. So on my second day, um, moving to Sioux Falls, South Dakota at the sober home, um, a car pulls up into the, the driveway and uh, it was actually the, the uh, founder of the organization who had created the sober homes. His name was Kevin. And um, he was driving us guys to a meeting and um, it was me and I think one other person in the car. And um, that was the first time I'd met Kevin. Skip ahead a couple of years. Uh, Kevin started an effort to figure out how, or what did Sioux Falls need to address the addiction problem? So he was, he's, the, he's a serial entrepreneur. He's always looking for problems and figuring out how can we find new solutions for these problems. And so um, I had met Kevin and ultimately uh, had joined the town hall process in Sioux Falls. Um, they rented out a conference room or a conference suite at the hotel, uh, Holiday Inn downtown and brought in all of the different change makers, all the different people in a community who you could think of folks like you and me, you know, um, doing what we do, but police chiefs and lawyers and doctors and counselors and all of those folks to rally around a single question. Uh, what would Sioux Falls, South Dakota look like if it treated addiction like the chronic disease that it is. So through that process, um, I got reconnected with Kevin. This was a couple of years after and because I was going back to law school, an organization had been founded, Face It Together. Um, I was involved in writing the original bylaws, uh, getting that organization formed. Um, but the other co-founder, Charlie, uh, he'd reach out every couple of weeks just to make sure I was, you know, doing okay. He was a, he was a lawyer. And um, when I graduated, um, the, I, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a, a legal job right away because I had to go through this year-long process to get licensed. So I reached out to Kevin and Charlie, and I just said, "Look, I know you guys know everybody. Uh, I'm got to get a job. Um, what do you know?" And um, they said, "You know, you know, we're four years into this effort. Three years into it, we've got other communities around the Midwest who um, are interested in this model we've created." why don't you come join our team? And so that was October of 2012. And so I got reconnected and joined Kevin and Charlie and a few others um, as Face It Together was beginning to grow its peer support model uh, throughout the Midwest. Okay. And recovery capital, can you, can you, can you kind of explain exactly what that is? And, and do you know the background behind recovery capital when it first became a concept that, that fell into use? 
Yeah, you know, it, it has a really long history. Um, uh, folks like uh, Granfield and Cloud, they're the two most cited, along with David Best and William White. Um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, that group, along with Alexandra Laude, um, were sort of toying around with the various notions around social capital. Uh, what we know from social capital is there are determinants in our life um, socially that create resilience within largely social capital I've been talking about in youth. Um, but a lot of those concepts um, really sort of fit uh, like a nice glove into what we know about recovery. Um, you, there are certain elements that you can line up like employment and education and transportation and basic needs and social connection. And when you line those things up, um, it forms this concept that we now know of recovery capital. Uh, it was really kind of how do we take this idea of social capital and, and put it in language and terminology that, that folks like us in the recovery world um, could grab onto. That's really sort of the the underpinnings was was you know late nineties early two thousands and then William White just um, kind of took it and started building frameworks and philosophies and thinking around different domains and and just started doing a lot of writing on it. And that organization was it called again? We'll do it together. We'll... Uh, face it together. Face it together. Okay. And did they? Did you? How did they? Did they start using recovery capital as a concept? Yeah, so I, I joined Face It Together in October of 2012. And uh, what happened was, um, so we provide peer coaching. Uh, Face It Together provides peer coaching for, for addiction. And we, we had that concept, we had that process down fairly well. Um, but some of our supporters were in the healthcare field. So if you don't know anything about Sioux Falls, South Dakota, what you should know is really kind of two things about that town. Um, it's a financial center. So a lot of credit card companies and banking institutions have their headquarters there. The reason is just the way the laws are set up. Um, but it's also a healthcare hub. So there are two large integrated health systems in Sioux Falls. Both of those health systems were funders of our nonprofit. One of the presidents of the, the health system was in our office getting an update from our two co-founders and uh, said, you know, we, we really love how you help people transform their lives and tell those stories, but anecdotes aren't data. And so Charlie, who, um, you know, is in his late 60s and kind of cantankerous, but lived by a, a philosophy of if you hear something in a meeting and it's what you need to hear, the meeting is over. So he walked over to my desk. I was the only one in the office at the time. And he, he said, uh, David, you've got 30 days. Figure out how to measure addiction recovery. And so that was the catalyst of now being trained as a lawyer, being trained as a historian, um, being a storyteller from radio, just diving in and figuring out, well, what was the story of this thing? How do, you, how do you actually measure something you can't see? You know, it's not like blood. Uh, we, don't, we can't take a blood measurement. Um, I think a lot of people would argue with what I just said. We can see recovery. <laughs> you and I are kind of living proof of, of that if we put a picture of our old selves uh, next to us. Um, but how do, we, how do we measure those intangibles? And, and how, what is the science to do that? And what is it? How do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's asking a lot of questions. Yeah. John. It really is. Um, 
you know, we've, we've done, the world has used public opinion polling really for a long time. There's a lot of trust behind that. We call it subjective data, right? I ask you a question. Maybe I frame the answers up in a very distinct way. Um, You know, do you strongly agree or disagree with some statement? And when you have that really um, stable framework of a, of a statement and a set of responses, now you just have to figure out, okay, what do you want to know? What statements do you want to ask? And then can you categorize those statements? So with recovery capital, we've got personal capital, social capital, and cultural capital. So what components, using our language of recovery capital index, what components that are under personal capital? And so for us, that's things like your general health and well-being, uh, mental health and well-being, employment, transportation, right? And what questions do I need, then need to ask inside those components? So with, say, employment, it's not so much that you're employed, but are you satisfied with your employment? Does it fulfill you? Does it reach into and give you purpose? And then um, not only are you satisfied or or does it bring you purpose, um, does it meet your needs relative to your recovery? So are there resources within your workplace? Um, Is there less stigma so that you can actually do your job? And so when you ask the right questions in that kind of way, now you can lay out all those questions. They're all standardized and you can put a number to it. So you can quantify that. And now I can actually have an index. So I can, I can survey you, John, and I can get a number, a series of numbers. And now we can break that apart in a lot of different ways and use that um, both for you to use it, but also maybe for a care provider. A counselor. I, was wondering how, I was wondering how you do use it. How is it used? Um, so, we, so where we started was with peer coaches. So John would come in. And we would know really not much about you. You know, we didn't have an electronic health record. We weren't connected to anything else. So we had two ways to gain information from you. The first was to say, John, the floor is yours. Why are you here? Tell us your story. That's hard to capture. (laughs) Um, People in early recovery, those stories are all over the place. They tend to not necessarily make a lot of sense. They make sense to us. Um, but they don't, they don't make a lot of sense um, to work from. And then we give you the, the recovery capital index survey. When you complete that, now we've got all this information kind of compartmentalized. And I can see high scores and I can see low scores. And using a little bit of um, uh, cognitive behavioral uh, techniques along with motivational interviewing, we can dive into some of those low areas and say, John, here's where you're scoring low. Uh, tell me a little bit about why. You know, you're telling me that your your social connections, they're, 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 those don't exist. And, and then we can start to piece that apart a little bit. And from that, a coach or a clinician can start to devise strategies to change that. Yeah, that so, seems to make sense. Yeah, and so it now becomes really engineered a little bit. It's very processed uh, to get to change. Uh, we don't just look at the outcome and say, John, I want you sober. And you have to be sober for the rest of your life. We say, let's put that there. But in order for that to really make that happen, you've got to feel safe. You've got to have really good connections. 
You've got to feel like you have a sense of your values and purpose. So let's start to break all these things down. And then if, if we're doing that over time, now we've got a measurement stick because we're going to measure this every 30 days and we can actually see change happen. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. It's, it's kind of like you can get that baseline for somebody where they're first starting out and then you can measure them six months later, a year later, whatever, and actually see some improvement, hopefully or not. And, and see how someone is doing. Yeah. We learned over time uh, that the, um, the, the best interval for seeing change was right around 30 days. Really? Interesting. Yeah. It, it, it took us a while to get there. You know, we kind of started at the zero, uh, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. But what we found was in early recovery, we tend to make change fast. Um, and it's like this hurry up change. And then it's kind of this slow process of change. And so uh, we tailored it down to 30 days. And what we could see inside 30 days was um, a, a little bit more of a calibration towards more minute differences that actually let, opened up some pretty fertile ground for for some growth conversations that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Right. Right. So, um, so you're, so now what you're doing then is you're, this is a concept uh, and that you can provide to treatment centers to use, uh, therapists maybe to use and are, and is it beginning to be used? It is. Yeah. We've got, um, we've got about 12 or 15 different providers around the country that are currently using it. Um, we're deploying it in a couple of different environments. Um, uh, one that is primarily focused on housing homeless, but with an underpinning of, of addiction treatment, because that's a primary issue. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's being deployed in a lot of different ways in these various organizations. Some are simply using it as a background passive pulse measure right? They're not actually actively engaging in the results with people and others are, you know, deeply into it. Um, you know, we get the results and we immediately dive in. Uh, we set plans. Some organizations are using it to actually build treatment and recovery plans. Um, others are, you know, just using it to measure long-term outcomes for organizations. And I so guess it's, ways. it's pretty much been found that having the more recovery capital you have, the better your chances are at remaining clean. Yeah. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't know the answer to that exact question. Right. I, I think that's the theory. The theory was um, if you remain, if, if you build recovery capital, will that help you remain sober um, or abstinent or the other way around? If you uh, remain sober, you build capital, <laughs> does that help you build recovery capital. So uh, one of the things I learned in a, a lot of this process was when you create an instrument like um, the PHQ-9, which actually measures anxiety and depression symptoms, um, or other instruments like the audit and the DAST. So if you go into any kind of um, uh, provider today, they're going to ask you those, how many alcoholic drinks have you had in the last 30 days? Um, that's that's the audit. Um those questionnaires are validated uh, to be reliable against a particular uh, variable. And so that's just a, a, a validation analysis. And so we did that. <clears throat> what we really wanted to know was, 
if, if John walks in the door, we had to have some sort of marker. So we would ask you, how would you describe your um, state of recovery today? And we gave a number of, of items, um, actively using, currently struggling, in recovery, recovered, survivor, well, decline. Those were the responses that we gave people. What we wanted to see was if you started out with saying that you were currently struggling, but then at 30 days or at 60 days or at 90 days, at some other interval along the way, that changed to now in recovery. What we wanted to be able to see was your, we wanted your score to go up off of that or vice versa. And that's what we were able to validate. And so if the score went up and we saw that that marker changed, great. If somebody didn't give us a change in that of their recovery status, we looked at two other markers, employment status and income. And, you, you know, your employment status could be could change or not change. Um, but again, those were areas within the research that Alexandra Laude had done around recovery capital that had identified transportation, housing, um, and employment as three of the biggest areas to build recovery capital from. You know, I was thinking about, uh, you mentioned that you were in an area with uh, uh, the Native American, the Indian reservation and some of the the worst poverty that exists. And I, and I know that, um, you know, reading about the Pine Ridge reservation and the poverty there is like third world. It's, it's unimaginable that that exists in the United States, but it, but it's, it does. And there's also a terrible alcohol problem there. Um, So with that kind of poverty, is there any sort of a chance to have build recovery capital or do you have to treat that poverty, get them out of the, so you're getting now you're getting to the existential question, <laughs> um, which is really kind of where where I'm shifting a lot of the work that I'm doing now is to really answer that question. How do we go uh, upstream? A lot of the solutions that we look at today. So the way you framed the question was kind of asking, well, how do we how do we solve poverty? If we yeah, solve poverty, if you think that poverty might be an obstacle to recovery, it's it's not only an obstacle to recovery, but it is a clear uh, path to addiction, right? So, you know, you've got both sides of that, uh, of that problem set, uh, two sides of the coin. And in the middle is that thin slice that we, we can hardly hang on to. And what we do know and what we have actually seen in some of the data that we've gathered up in the last year in Palm Beach County in particular is that income levels remain relatively low, but we see really strong and growing recovery capital in cultural settings and social settings. What's happening in that space is even though the um, the status, the socioeconomic status isn't improving, individuals are keying into other needs. You know, so they're making greater connections either through um, social support groups or AA or um, other places. And as that starts to build and grow, we just don't know how much more longer time it takes to build enough connections to then see the, the, the social mobility through economic pictures change. And so the only thing I'll add to that is I think what we'll find 
in the work in Palm Beach County is for the very first time in that county's um, uh, work, they can actually look at this data and say, well, we've been, we've been putting money towards X, Y, and Z. We need to shift our resources to poverty specifically. How do we solve that? Um, and, and now that, now that we can sort of change the, the allocation of dollars in a way that we couldn't before, because we didn't really have that subjective input from the people in the community say, yeah, I'm poor, but I'm poor because. Right. So I think the only thing I ever learned in psych 101 was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And when I looked back at my early recovery, that's immediately what I thought of when I, when I look back at the, at how I progressed, it was like, you know, I had, I had to take care. I had to, first of all, satisfy the basics. I had to have, I had to feel secure. I had to have some security. I had to have food and shelter and clothing. And I think probably before I could even get that, I had to have some sort of uh, support from my, from my community, my community support, some loves people that cared about me. You know, and then uh, it was still a struggle, but I was able to build and build and build upon until I could finally feel like I was financially okay and not have to worry about my basic needs. Yeah, and you know, Maslow's hierarchy needs is really. Um, I think a lot of us learned that. And we learned <laughs> That's it. all I learned. <laughs> and we learn it, and part of the, I think part of the reason why. Um, some of us retain that is because it, we have that triangle in our head. Yeah, we do. Right. Yeah. And so very visually we see this actual hierarchy. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm reminded of, uh, there's another professor out there. Um, uh, his name is Scott uh, Kaufman and, and, and Dr. Kaufman has been writing lately about um, that hierarchy, not necessarily being a hierarchy. So when we start talking about self-actualization, and as you were just describing it, um, we pull on those levers at different times and at different moments, and we actually get, this is Kaufman speaking, we get transcendence in those areas at different times. So we get moved up into the clouds because of the wind from other things. Right, right? makes sense. If I have just enough food, if I have just enough shelter, um, it just needs to be enough. But it's not like I need to have that first before the next thing happens. Gotcha. I can actually start to self-actualize around, you know, like for my own experience, it was, well, I didn't have a job. I didn't have employment, but I had education. Right. And through the education meant contacts and the social connections meant opportunity. Well, that's one way to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's twisting that kaleidoscope a little bit and just figuring out it's not one plus two plus three plus four. It, it could be four plus one plus two plus mm-hmm. three. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. I always think of things in linear ways and I think that's probably common for people, you know, even in, um, in 12 step programs, you think you go one, t- but you know, when you really look at your experience, all these things kind of happen all together. They're all kind of mixed together. Sometimes it doesn't, doesn't always work out that way. Yeah. I think that was one of the frustrating things for me. Um, once I finally bought into uh, AA was, you know, sitting down with sponsors and looking at these steps and saying, um, number seven doesn't make any sense with me right now. Can I skip ahead to 10, please? 
uh, let me do that work. And, you know, just, you know, the diehards would just be, no, you are going to do, <laughs> we're going in this direction. And, um, and I'm forever grateful for that process, right? I think one of the things that you and I are now kind of talking, and I'd be really interested in the way you think about this is, you know, we're talking about what is the process? How can we actually focus on process versus just a defined outcome? Yeah. And, well, and how does that change us? First of all, I think that those steps are a description of an experience. And I think a lot of what happens would happen naturally, okay, from people um, deciding they have a problem, they need help, and they gather together to help each other. And I think that a lot of the, of what we do with those steps, you know, we realize that, you know, we start thinking inwardly about our behavior in the past. We start thinking about our relationships and we try to, it's just natural human behavior to want to go mend those relationships, you know, um, to, uh, to improve, you know, I think, I think it's just all natural stuff. And I think that these guys, they got together and they said, wow, th- these are the experiences that we had and they just happened to put them in a numbered list. You know, and I think that that's, that's, that's all that is. And I, I think that my opinion is that the, the, the steps are less important to me than all the things that you're doing and the people you're connecting with. That, that's just me, but I'm not an expert. I'm just a guy that, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I'm not hung up on the steps. I think that they're great. But I do think that it's just an expression of an experience. And they're really, the verbiage is someone else's language. So for me, if I was, if someone was asking me about how they should approach the steps, I would say, well, first of all, put it in your own words. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. And I, I, I find that um, having them framed as steps in that you have to sort of be successful at the one before you can get to the next um, creates a lot of tension. Yeah, it does. And then, and if you do, if you screw up, you have to go back, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that was one of the, um, the, the challenges we were trying to overcome in thinking about recovery capital was, you know, I had the experience and millions of others have the experience every single day where they get a couple of days sober and they haven't used in a while. And then uh, they, they use again and society or a program or family has told them, well, now you are back to zero. Yeah. And that's uh, not true. I don't think that's true either. No, I don't it's think it's demoralizing. true. No, it's, yeah. It's like, no, you're, you haven't lost anything that you've learned from the past. And in fact, that, that slip could be help you further. You can still learn from that. You know, if you, if you think about it in the right way. Yeah. And I think if you watch or read anything that um, uh, Dr. Judd Brewer writes about, um, you know, he, he's got a great Ted talk where he talks about uh, negative feedback loops and that's how anxiety builds. And that's how we build really bad negative behaviors. Um, What you described is, you know, how do we get mindful on that event Right. If, if I used again, um, now what is my thought process after the fact, after I've dealt with my own sort of self disappointment and I'm able to frame it that way, how can I then reverse engineer that experience? Go back as far as I can mentally. Okay. I, I did this thing and what was I thinking in the moments prior to that? 
what actually happened to me earlier in the day? What was I thinking when I woke up? What happened last night right before I went to bed? <laughs> right? And you, you can start to pull those things apart and, and get to a, a moment. And that's, that's a learning process. Um, that, so that was one of the things with recovery capital we were trying to solve was how do we take a lot of the pressure off of this, this, I, this abstinence idea and, and move it. I, I like to say, let's take this and just put it into a box off to the side. You're not going to forget about it. We know it's there. It's the elephant in the room. Um, but let's go see where you're actually making some progress over here. Let's find some real good wins in your life. And let's celebrate those. Eventually, we forget about the box. <laughs> it takes care of itself. And we get really hung up and excited about these other areas in our life. And those things take over. Yeah. I did, uh, I think it was not too long ago, I went through the training for SMART Recovery, the the facilitator training. And it's interesting and smart because they, they don't see, uh, it's not all black and white. So there's a difference in, in their verbiage between a slip and a relapse, a full-blown relapse and just having a slip. And it kind of takes, it, it seems like that kind of takes pressure off people. Whereas in AA, it's like, oh, damn, you know, it's all, it's just, that's it. You know, it's, it's all black and white. Any, any, any amount of alcohol you had, any drink you had is just a, is a full-blown relapse, it seems, you know. Um, so that was different. And also SMART focuses more on the addiction as a behavior than as a uh, illness, I guess. As a, as a brain illness. Yeah. Um, you know, we could, we could get lost on, on those issues. To me, at the end of the day, um, where, where do you have discomfort? Where, where are the externalities that are causing uh, pain and, 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 and negative challenges in your life? And, and let's just categorize them. You know, uh, let's go back to the steps. Let's inventory, <laughs> inventory these things. And, and then let's just start figuring out um, how do we want to move beyond them? and solve them. Uh, you know, it, it's, it really does do, come down to just really that self-identification of these various things. Yeah. So where do you see this going? Where, where, or where do you want it to go uh, with what you're doing now? What are your hopes for, for this? Well, the big vision is, you know, I, I think the, the industry, whether, you know, if we're talking about behavioral health, addiction, treatment, care, um, even mental health care to some extent, uh, there isn't a standard measure. So you can't walk into one treatment facility or uh, one counseling center uh, or a hospital, and there isn't a single measure for what I call addiction wellness. You know, we have that, say, for diabetes, I can track your A1C, and we know exactly what success is. Um, so ultimately, either you know, getting this to be the measure or nudging the industry to getting towards a standard measure, a standard language that all of us can agree on so that no matter where, what door you walk into, treatment A, treatment B, treatment C are going to measure change relative to this condition we call addiction the same way. Before you go, I read a little bit. Are you doing something? Are you trying to adapt this right now to COVID in some way? So we um, 
we were fortunate in that in Palm Beach County, we actually had recovery capital being measured from last October until this October. And so what we're doing right now is I've got some data scientists diving into the data to see um, what were some of the, the correlative um, uh, relationships of, of COVID as an external force. We might not be able to form strong conclusions, but we might be able to see what were some correlating areas that either had a greater impact or a lesser impact because of this, this thing that, that we didn't expect. And so we're kind of doing that analysis now. It's really interesting right now. Um, I still participate in the AA and AA meetings and so forth and to see everything moving online and people who are um, getting sober for the first time and going to AA meetings for the first time online, a whole different experience, but it seems to be working, you know, I, for, for what I'm, I'm seeing from these people that are online, they seem to be, a, I, I don't know. I personally, I would have had a hard time. I can't even imagine that, but you do what you can do, I suppose. Yeah, I think um, what's at the heart of that? I think the heart of that is connection and and where and how can we find that? Um, if it's online, um, all, all of what you and I are doing right now is yes, the same right. thing we do yeah, if you're right. sitting at a coffee table. Yeah, you're true. that's very true. That's very true. And, um, so we just have to make that mental leap and say, okay, um, either A, this is going to be the only way that I can connect because I might live in a rural area, or this is going to supplement what I'm going to do every day in these real life relationships that I'm building. Okay. Well, I do appreciate you coming on here. Where, where can people go to learn about recovery capital and recover the recovery capital index? You can go to recoverycapital.io. Um, if you search recovery capital uh, index into Google, you'll likely find uh, my website um, but yeah, uh, that's where you'll find everything that you need to know about at least, uh, the index itself. Okay. And we'll post some links to that and the show notes when we get the podcast uh, posted. And, um, also I think I might, I might post a link to your Ted talk, which I found really interesting as well. So Thank people you. can learn more about you. So. So that's it. That's another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, David, for being our guest today. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you.